Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Welcome to Stop the Killing. This is part two of our conversation with the real manhunter, Colin Sutton. So without further ado, let's jump right into the episode. In fact, jumping is the perfect segue today. Well, I know we've kind of jumped around. Over I always do. Cases. Sorry. I, mean, I think no. you're both as bad as each other, to be fair. When I'm editing this, it's going to be a nice little game for me. But I, I did want to go back to the Levi Belfield case and ask you, do you remember the aha moment or was there an aha moment when you knew that you had put the pieces together enough to be sure that you knew who it was? Yeah. And it was really quite early on with Levi. So in these other offences that had gone on that we'd been looking at, there was another offence where a young girl called Kate Sheedy, who was only 18, had been run over in Walton Road in Isleworth and run over deliberately, knocked down, the car went over her, drove back over her again, then drove off and, and caused her you know, horrible injuries. Many fractured ribs, damaged her liver, her spleen, spinal injury. She survived and you know, she finished her degree and went on and married. But that was the case. We weren't sure that that was one of ours, but it was in the right area. And it was kind of, if you substitute a car for a hammer, then it fitted, you know. Uh, and when we looked at that case and she said it was a white MPV, sort of people carry a seven-seater type thing, minibus, I don't know what the best way to describe it, but didn't know the make or model. Well, the night that we'd put two and two together with Levi Belfield and owning a white van and his ex saying that he was violent and hated blondes and so forth and had raped her, we looked at his in- intelligence file and it was a thick printout and just before... Kate Sheedy had been run over within a week or so previously. He'd been arrested driving his Toyota Previa, which was the sort of vehicle that he wanted. And I asked one of the intelligence researchers to go and check it. And it didn't say in the report what color this vehicle was. And Kate was firm that it was white. And I said, you know, just do a check on this car. You tell me if it's white. I said, if it's white, I think we might have hit the jackpot. And she walked back in two minutes later. She said, Governor, I think we've hit the fucking jackpot. Yeah. Uh, and we found out, there's, and so you then got the point, you've got this man, you've got two vehicles owned by him that are at the scene or involved in two young 
women being attacked within a mile or two of each other, you know? And at that point you think, well, uh, what's the old saying? Detectives don't like coincidences. We don't like coincidences, but you know, this, you need to start looking at him, don't you? You need to eliminate him at best, you know, or worst. But of course, at that time we didn't have the registration number for the van. So that was a whole other level of pain trying to find out actually which white van it was. But yeah, so that was just in like November, 2004. So we'd been going for about three months and mm. we finally got it to court in October, 2007. So three years after that. Wow. And the trial went on until the end of February 2008. So, is, that, is that normal for it to take that long to, to build the case? No, not really. Because normally these days you'll find some item of forensic evidence that you know satisfies the yeah. CPS uh, to charge earlier than that. You know, we had a particularly brilliant advocate, QC, Brian Altman, who did a number of cases for me that I got on work very well with. And we had a CPS lawyer who his attention to detail is seven to none, you know, and they were both, you know, no surprises, Mr. Sutton. That's what Brian Norman would say to me. They said, I don't want to get surprised by anything when I go into that courtroom, when we go through those doors. <laughs> right. We, <laughs> you know, we, we know what we're doing and, and we did. And I actually had no doubt in my mind that he, well, I didn't have any doubt that he'd done it. But I didn't have a right. doubt in my mind that he'd get convicted of it. I always believed he would be convicted of it because... Oh, that's a good feeling. Yeah, but I mean, I, I don't think it was... It wasn't a shoo-in, you know, a slam dunk or whatever you want to call it. It wasn't yeah. easy, but I just always thought that there was so much there and the team had done so well to uncover these tiny bits of evidence that just built the picture. You know about the thing with the shopping list? Do you know about that one, Sarah? I was about to say to you, what were those most crucial pieces of evidence yeah. in that that really built the case? I mean, because of the way the case worked, you can't say one piece of evidence was more important than the other. They all contributed, but we've got some stuff. So the CPS wanted to prove that basically the night Emily was murdered, before she was murdered, Belfield's partner had gone in a taxi to get their food shopping at Tesco and had phoned him to say, pick me up, and he went and picked her up, and then he drove back, dropped her off, went off and murdered Emily, basically. So she could tell us that he had a mobile phone with him and that he was in that van, which is all good evidence, but the CPS wanted us to prove that she was talking about the right night and the right day, so we had to try to prove that she'd been shopping at Tesco's that night at the time she had. Easy. Two detectives go around to see and say, right, have you got your bank cards, your bank statement or whatever records to so show where you pay for your shopping and what time. They said, well, no, of course I haven't because I haven't got any cards. I'm not allowed to have cards. Levi doesn't allow you to have bank cards. He gives you cash. That's all Classic. we've got. Classic coercive control. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, you know, a lesser man and woman might have just said, oh, okay, fair enough, come back, written up the action into the room, no, she paid cash, and that would have been the end of it. Without referring to me or a sergeant or anybody else completely off their own back, they go back to Emma. They then say to her, okay, it was the first time you went shopping after you'd had a baby three weeks ago. Yeah. Right. You must have bought disposable nappies. Yeah. Okay. How many? What What make? Write it down. Pampers, you know, whatever size. Milk. Formula milk or breast milk? Formula milk. Right. What sort of formula milk? Okay. Your normal shopping. You're washing up liquid. Your tea, your coffee, your bread, washing powder. You know, 
all the normal wow. domestic shopping that you do. Yeah. They recreated her shopping list and they said, how much did she spend on it? She said, it was about 70 quid. They then go to Tesco. So there are 26 or 25 checkouts in this Tesco. Yeah. Oh, they my. Go to, they go to the manager and say, do you keep your teal stubs? And he says, yes, they're all up in the attic. He said, they're in boxes for a month. So they go up there and it's dusty. They're taking boxes, opening, and they find the box that's August 2004. They go through it until they find the till rolls, so 26 or 25 tills for the 20th of August, and then are going through, and they find Pampers, Nescafe, Fairy Liquid, formula, FMA formula, whatever it is, £71, 8.25 p.m. Wow. Wow. Now that is Bingo. just like, yeah. That's police that, work. That's, that is, that is, isn't it? You know, and, and it's, it's, you love it. You know, getting the best out of your team is about allowing them to be their best people. And yeah. I love the fact they felt they could do that without telling anyone. They had the idea and went and did it and brought me back the evidence, you know. Brilliant. Amazing. Amazing. What was that moment like when they told you about how they'd got the Tesco receipt? Oh, I was just, just sort of gobsmacked, I think the phrase is, you know, I just didn't know what to say. And, you know, they were both really experienced detectives and the particularly it was the, the female officer had been on the flying squad at the armed robbery squad, if you like, in, in London. And it brought home to me just how bloody wonderful these people are. So just having the idea of, okay, not, we can't do it. It's, we can't do it that way. So let's find another way, you know, that's all you want, isn't it really? Yeah. It's incredible lateral thinking. Do you think you would have come up with that? that no, no, I'm no good. At, I'm not a detective. I just play I one just, on TV. Yeah. I just, I just, um, I just organized other, I organized property detectives. This is great. The whole team used to sit down sometimes to listen to things. If we had things to listen to, mostly they were his phone calls from prison while he was on remand and see if there was anything in there. But we'd seized a phone from him when he was arrested. That was one of the first phones that could take little 10 second, really low resolution video clips. And he'd left it with his 16 year old mistress. Or who he'd been with for two years. Oh, so, I I ew. Literally well, vomited in my mouth. Yeah. Ew. Let's, let's, let's actually call her his rape victim. Um, because yep. that's probably the right way to describe her. Mm-hmm. He'd gone out. This was the night that uh, Kate Shuddy gets run over and he'd gone out and he'd left her a 16 year old and a 14 year old sister and a, a liter of vodka and a mobile phone that did recording. So you can imagine hilarious consequences ensued and they were videoing each other and one of them was sick. And also, but he comes back in with an outside coat on, picks up a tool, checks it, points it to his face and twitches it on to, to check that it's working and goes back out again on one of these video clips. And he's telling him, oh, fuck off, I don't you film me, fuck off. This is about 20, 25 minutes after Kate Sheed has been run over. So the logic is, isn't it, if you just run mm-hmm. somebody over with your car and it's dark, you might want to check and see how much damage there is or evidence there is there or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it proved that he was out at the time. He couldn't say I was with my 16-year-old rape victim, could he? You know, um, True, yeah. Uh, so it's quite important. But the thing was, was in those days, the phones didn't necessarily take their time and date from the network. So we had to prove that that phone we'd seized had the correct time and date, or, or at least that the time and date on that video was correct or roughly correct. And we'd sat down and listened to that music that was playing in the background on this clip. Yeah, I don't know, 40 times, 30 times. And I like my music and I'm a bit of a whiz with, with Popmaster on the radio over here, which won't mean anything to Americans, but mm-hmm. pop quiz type stuff. Yeah. I couldn't recognize it. And 
nobody else could. And I'm thinking, yeah, we're never going to do this. And one of the typists said, that's not a pop song. That's a theme song from the television. It's a theme tune from the TV mm-hmm. program. Oh. And it just goes to show that once you focus your attention away from your, your mm-hmm. constrained thinking that I'm listening for a pop song. Oh, right. Okay. And then we all start listening again. And I said, yeah, it's Wheel of Fortune. And it was. And so we then oh, go my. Back, we go back to the TV listings. And yes, it could have been recorded. It could have been on catch up. Who would watch Wheel of Fortune on catch up? Like, I don't know. Anyway, but uh, we go back to the listings. There was a channel somewhere on Freeview that was broadcasting at that time when this video purported to have been taken. So we contact yeah. the broadcaster and they keep records down to a second, don't they? And they could tell us exactly the time that that was taken. That's police work. And what I love about that story is that it was a typist who input stuff on database all the time. It wasn't a great detective, experienced detective. Yeah. And the value of actually involving everybody. So many people that I know that did my job or similar actually used to have their little clique and their, you know, the, the inner circle that were privy to information. But now you share everything with them because you never know who is going to come up with the answer to the problem. The value of crowdsourcing. Right yes. there. Yes. The value of press conferences. Yeah. It's sharing with the press, saying this is what we need the public's help for, this and that. Yeah, yeah. The trouble is, I think in, in the States, you've not had this this sort of sea change with police media relations that we had a few years back with business about the Philkin Report and Operation Elfden, basically where some police officers and public officials were being paid for information by journalists. And since then, the walls have gone up. And, you know, th- there is little engagement now between... Mm our investigators and the media. And I warned against this because I said at the time, if you don't engage, you lose the opportunity to influence. I'm not saying you can control, but you can influence. And if you don't engage with the media, they're not going to have white space in their newspapers. They're not going to have extra ad breaks in their TV programs. They're going to need material to fill that and they'll get it from sources which aren't as good as us or they'll make it up or both. And the other effect of that has been there is a generation of journalists in this country now whose default position is to criticize the police. Yeah. And that wasn't the case 15 years ago. We had an interview, as I was going to say, with Mike Corton, who used to be the FBI's communications director. And I found it super interesting that within his role was actually being part of movies so that anything that was FBI related no, the FBI could present themselves and, and yeah. leave the audience with a good taste in their mouth. Yeah. And that's all positive, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, we've, and we, failed, we failed to do it for forever. We just don't take these opportunities here, which is why I say so often when I see American law enforcement on the TV talking about incidents, I think, wow, they're fantastic. They're open. They tell the truth. They tell it as it is. Mm. And there's none of this hand-wringing prevarication that we, we see far too often here. I think, Colin, you would agree the truth always comes out. So it's better to just be forward. Of course. If you, yeah. If you make a mistake, you just have to admit it right up front. If you hide it, yeah. then you've made two mistakes. Yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. My 10 golden rules that I gave my son when he joined the police, that was one of them. I said to, to err is human, to cover it up is often criminal. So, I mean, this is true, but. Where we've seen the effect of it, I think, recently here is the Nicola Bully case, for example, where everybody, all these armchair detectives and retired police officers who should know better, and everybody wants to get involved with it and have their two penneth. I must have turned down 30 requests to talk to 
various media people doing that. No, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to hamstring that SIO like all you are. You know, but the truth of it is, you see, if that had happened 15 years ago, that SIO would have had briefing meetings with Fleet Street, with broadcast journalists, and said, look, this is what's going on. This is why we're not saying it. And they would have abided by it because that was the kind of relationship that we had then. And they'd have understood that to do anything other than that would not be helpful. We've lost that. We yeah. can't do that now. For those people that don't know, can you just give a little thumbnail of what the Nicola Bully case is? Because it was absolutely everywhere here when it happened and we all yeah. followed it. But international listeners might not be quite so familiar. Yeah, Nic- Nicola was a lady in her 40s who went out walking her dog one day and didn't come back. And the dog was found by a river. And the river was searched in case she'd fallen in there either accidentally or deliberately. And it took a time. Was it two weeks before her body resurfaced? It was certainly a number. And McKinney, yeah, there was a lack of understanding there of, of just what objects like human bodies in water do. They go all over the place. You can't predict it. And what was sad was that there was a huge internet interest and people going down there doing TikToks, and there were all these various experts coming out of work saying this about searching the ground and about searching water and what the police should be doing, what the police shouldn't be doing. And the team, I've no doubt, spent as much time dealing with that as they did with dealing with the investigation into what happened to this poor woman, and it's just wrong. And it should have been stopped, and it could have been stopped if the relationship were there between the media and the police. I agree with you. That's so important. And it's so easily forgotten. We had an officer killed at our Los Angeles airport many years ago. And the chief of the police for the airport, which is a huge airport, he said, I did my first press conference an hour and a half after the shooting, after the officer was killed. And he said, in 45 minutes, I knew everything. Yes. So I could have given that first press conference in 45 minutes, and I could have ended 45 minutes of speculation by the public, rumors on social media. So for sure here, the media is so engaged, and we definitely recognize from a law enforcement standpoint overall that it's better to get the information you can and then tell them you'll give them more later than it is to say nothing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You know, I had 28, I think it was, separate meetings with journalists prior to the Belfield trial that were all documented to brief them on to what the issues were. And there were skeletons in the cupboard. You know, with that one, some investigations into the the non-murders hadn't been done as well as they might have been done. But I gave them all the information to focus upon. Say, look, this is actually how well we've done. This is where we went right. This is what we did well. This is what he's like. This is a story. And it worked for him. And then somehow within five years, when we could have done a similar kind of exercise with the Night Stalker, it was, no, we're going to wring our hands and say we're sorry. And I don't know. I say, I think it's people, people really not assuming the responsibility they should for their own actions, their own commands. It's easier to make the amorphous organization sorry, you know. So we've got institutional racism, we've got institutional misogyny. Let's have institution incompetent, shall we? Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that 
Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Tell us a bit about the work that you're doing at the moment because you've had the dramatisation of Manhunt and then you became Colin Sutton playing Colin Sutton on TV in Manhunt going back and doing the cases. And and you said that you're going back now and looking at cases that aren't your own cases. Do you think that is going to bridge the gap a little bit between maybe unveiling for the public what actually goes on Mm. behind those doors in an honest way? Because clearly people are invested yeah. in, in Colin Sutton and trust you. Well, I, I would hope it does. Um, I mean, the, the, the motivation when we started making The Real Manhunter, I'd done, you know, a number of documentaries on cases I knew nothing about. And, you know, I'd, I'd sit there and do six cases and they'd ask me a question and I'd look at the answer from my iPad and give it to camera and then we'd do that for a day, you know. And I wanted to be a bit better than that somehow if I was going to do true crime documentaries. And I, so the, the kind of whole idea of writing the first book was about showcasing the investigation, showcasing what it's like for police officers, detectives in these situations who are investigating these. And I wanted to do that. So that was a tick that I wanted to do with Real Man Hunter. I wanted to make sure we focused on those that were left, that person who's sitting in prison as well. I think too many true crime programs are about the individual perpetrator. So just a stupid thing, but every single episode of The Real Manhunter is named after the victim rather than the perpetrator, even if that name's not nearly as well known, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's about saying, how are these things investigated? What's it like to investigate these crimes? What's it like to have that pressure and to have that desire to succeed? What's it like to have a loved one taken from you by murder? Because one of my other huge sort of things I'd always say, there is no closure. Closure does not happen with murder. Loved ones learn to live with the loss of somebody by murder, but they never get closure. It's never out of their mind. They just live in a different way and have live it every day. So he's talking to those people and it's showcasing just how good police officers can be at dealing with them, at supporting them and catching the bad guys. But it's not about the bad guys. And I never wanted it to be about the bad guys. You know, that's just not how we do it. 
I did one of the programs in the first series where it was a case of Claire Bernard. Claire worked in the cosmetics counter at Harvey Nichols, and she had a relationship with a, a security man there called Michael Peck, who, when she broke the relationship off, came in, shot her and shot himself in, in the middle of Harvey Nichols. Wow. And it was a shocking case. And there were lots yeah. of issues around it because he'd been stalking her, he'd been convicted of harassing her, but wasn't imprisoned because the offence didn't warrant that sentence and doesn't warrant that sentence according to the law. And yeah, you know, it was a shocking case. And I'd spoken to Claire's mum at the time when it happened and she made herself quite active with a charity about stopping stalking. And so I'd like to speak to her about that. And I had this Zoom meeting with her because she was very nervous about doing it. Well, it's lovely. I mean, she'll forgive me for saying she's, she's older than I am, certainly. And she had a father with her who's older than my father. Oh, wow. I think. And he was on the Zoom call. I think it was 90-something. It's lovely. And lovely people, lovely, decent people. And I had this conversation. And I said, look, it's not trashy. It's not sensationalist. And do you know what? It gives you a platform for your charity. We'll give you a third of the program. You come on and tell us whatever you want to tell us about what you do with your charity and how it works. And she said, oh, okay, yeah. And it was one of the best watched episodes was that episode about Champion Up. But we've used our platform. And, you know, well, I say platform, we're getting 300, 400,000 viewers a night when it airs, which yeah, is pretty amazing. good for Sky Crime, actually. Mm. But we're using that platform to enable somebody like Claire Bernard to say, oh, okay, this tragedy has hit me in my life, but look what I've done about it. And look how I want to try and help other people with it. Well, we'll give you the platform to do that. I think there's an awful lot of people who are making true crime TV who talk a good game about non-sensationalizing stuff and concentrating on victims and not glorifying violence, not glorifying murderers. They talk a good game about it. And then you watch some of the stuff that's out there and you think, oh, man, I'm not so sure, you know. You know? I know. I feel like sometimes we go two steps forward and one step back in the true crime mm. genre. Like we had a, a, mm. a spate of Netflix dramas that were, you know, really kind of empowering and particularly in the con story space. Yeah. And then we had this one, which was, I think, the fake heiress story, and she was made into this cult hero. And I was like, yeah. what are we missing? We're still yeah. villainizing the victims in that. And yeah. I was just really disappointed in it. So it's great that you've taken up that space with something that is empowering. I think the official phrase is production values, darling, but I, I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, but that's where we are. When you look at these cases like the Levi Belfield and the Night Stalker, what was the input of the public and how helpful was that to you in the case? There's obviously that pathway to violence that you've seen with these cases. How could um, we have derailed that as a community? I think Levi was easier would have mm. been easier to derail because so many people who knew him, who were acquainted with him, knew that he was wrong, knew that he was going to end up like that, I suppose. Uh, but because of his nature, they were too scared to say or do anything about it. And, you know, Le Levi was a typical bully in the sense that he, he preyed on people that he knew he could dominate, both in terms of his partners, but also, you know, the people he chose to work for him. I don't think there is anything they could have done because they didn't have the personality. They didn't have the confidence to do anything about it. They were frightened of him, basically. You know, but he chose people to be around him who would be frightened of him. That's, that's the point. You talk to the people who worked on the doors with him when he was a doorman at nightclubs, and they'd say, well, if it really ever kicked off, he'd go missing. You know, when there was a big fight and it was pitch battle six of us against 12 of them, Levi was never to be seen. 
So he didn't really have much stomach for a fight, unless you thought he could easily win it, I suppose. But I think the difference in people knowing about him and Delroy Grant, the Night Stalker, is huge because everybody we spoke to who knew Levi kind of said, yeah, well, we always expected this to happen. You know, it was just a matter of time. Speak to the same people who knew Delroy. And it was, no, you've got the wrong man. You must have the wrong man. He's the life and soul of the party. He's the, you know, store of the cricket team, the guy that DJs and does the barbecue when we have street parties in the cold set where we live. His wife got progressive muscle sclerosis. She's virtually quadriplegic and he cares for her. Before she had that, he used to go knocking on the doors with her for, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, although he didn't really, you know, he's just a lovely guy. He's a nice guy. Mm. And no, yet he, really so he silly. was able, he was able to flick the switch and the first time I met him when he was dressed all in white because we'd taken his clothes off him, he's in the police station. And he looked like he was going to go and play cricket. And you try and break the ice, you try and start a conversation. And I sort of said, Oh, you got to play cricket then or something. And he'd, he'd seized on it. And we ended up standing there having a conversation about the England cricket squad that was going to tour South Africa later that year. Okay. He's just had a giant cotton bud dragged across his cheek that's going to put him in prison until he's in his 80s. And we're standing talking about cricket. And I didn't understand then. It was only later when I wrote the book, when I started thinking about it in a more sort of academic way, what I was getting there was the Delroy Grant that his friends and people down the pub and in the cricket team got. The ordinary nice guy, life and soul on the party, sit down, let's have a pint. Yeah. But he just could change like that. He certainly had the ability to be two different people. Scary. And yeah, it is. And in some ways, that makes him even more sinister than Levi, doesn't it? Because with Levi, you know what you're getting. You take one look at him and you realize, you know, yeah, this is probably going to be a bloke I don't want to argue with. And then he starts speaking, apart from the fact that his voice is about four octaves higher than you'd imagine it to be. But other than that, you start speaking and you, you yeah, you're going to be quite kind of wary of him. Whereas Delroy is just an ordinary 50-year-old guy, wants to talk about cricket and have a pint, you know. I think that's even scarier, isn't it? I think that's what people fear yeah. is that wolves in sheep's clothing. And I think that's why people are invested in understanding true crime so that they can spot those predators that are so well hidden in society. Mm. I could talk to Colin forever. I need a pint so we can chat and, yeah. chat and swap well, stories. If I manage to get my invitation to come to CoinCon next year. And, uh, that'd be do, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that'd, yeah be that'd be great. We'll do that then, Catherine. Yeah, because I really hope to do that. Yeah. Are you talking well, about well, the we'll UK have... one or the no, the, no, US. the American one? The US. Oh, yeah. God, are you going to come to the US one? That'd be amazing. Well, I spoke to somebody when I was at UK one, and he said that he'd send me an invitation. I might have to remind him. You know, it would be fun. We should do a piece about UK US differences. Yes, yes, let's do that'd it. Be, let's yeah. do that. That great. would be so fun. Yes, let's, you heard it here let's first. Let's pitch you that. heard it here yeah. first. Yeah, that's yeah. a great idea. It'd be really yeah. fun. And yeah. when you do want to come and listen to that, use the discount code FERRIS for your 10% off. <laughs> Get that in quick. That would be an incredible crossover, honestly. That would be fun. Yeah. That would be fun. Give us a little plug on where people can find all things Colin Sutton. Right. Books are on Amazon and Waterstones sometimes have it, and I always turn it around to face outwards. Uh when I go towards stones. <laughs> Although, I must say, it is a plug. I don't do that at the moment because I'm doing it for another book called No Ordinary Day, which is written by Matt Johnson and John Murray about Yvonne Fletcher. And it is the most amazing tale, not only of John Murray's 
tenacity and persistence in getting his friend's case looked at, but also the background they've got as to how the British government, the Thatcher government at the time, was involved in stopping any investigation. It's a real eye-opener. It's a great book to read. No Ordinary Day. Uh, This sums up who Colin is, that we give him an opportunity to pitch himself, his (laughs) books, and everything Colin, and he takes the time to pitch somebody else's book and tell tells us to tell everybody to buy it. It's that important. I think it's summarizes important. how wonderful he is. No, it's important. It's important because the money from that book is going towards the fund to get the criminal prosecution going. So it's, that's that's why it's, it's a big part of me at the moment. But yeah, so the book's called Manhunt. The second book is called Manhunt: Colon the Night Stalker, and the two dramas are called the same. And this TV show is the Real Manhunter on Sky Crime, where I go through cases with people who were part of it that's another thing another production value for it is that everyone we talked to there were no talking heads they did it they were either journalists covering it police officer investigating it witness scientist member of the family whatever but everybody in those programs has skin in the game fascinating the production value darling <laughs> it is it is i've got the, the lingo what do you think you'd be the most proud of what we did and it's always we is we stopped literally hundreds of mostly women, some men, being victimised by Levi Belfield or Delroy Grant. And actually, there's not much better you can do with life than that, really, is it? to stop lots of people falling foul of these evil people. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to Community Podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. 
What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. 